This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. About to head into a message here that is uh, dangerous territory, as you guys know, I, I tend to gravitate towards dangerous territory. Uh, this one is a little more dangerous than maybe is wise. Uh, you'll understand as we progress. Uh, if you've peered through the notes, you see pictures of Hitler, Stalin. Uh, if you look very close at the notes, you see the, uh, the, uh, the, the letters or the anacronym LGBTQ. And uh, everything that could uh, be dangerous is suddenly in one message. And uh, I think we're, what I'm desiring to actually end with in this is a movement towards something that I think this church already has established, but I want to freshly blow on the flame. I want to stick a fresh piece of kindling on the fire. And that is that we are a church that is praying and confessing. We are an action-oriented church that believes the truth and we hold to the truth of the word of God uncompromisingly, but we do it in such a way where we animate it and we don't just sit on good solid doctrine and paint our fingernails and blow upon them and look pretty. I am not interested in a pretty looking church. I'd rather be roughed up with you know, bruises and, and bloody uh, uh, noses to be living it. I have a desire for that. Our leadership has a desire for this, this blend. Uh, and there's just dangerous territory that the church is currently navigating through in our country. And I'm going to stick my finger on it and sort of push a little. Right now, uh, we have what would be the equivalent of a civil war in our country on the political side and on the social side. In Windsor, Colorado, we don't feel it to the same degree that it is activated uh, in our culture. But uh, what you see is in the, what's, what are called the pundits, the, the voices that articulate the sides. Uh, there's a great animosity. There is a great anger, in fact, to the level of hatred and desire of death. Uh, to an extreme that is far beyond anything most of us grew up with. And right now it is becoming very normal. There are certain conservative pundits that m- many of us have listened to for years that have grown far more aggressive in their hatred, in their articulation of their wish for people to just go and die. And the danger that we face as the church, in a church like this, where we would lean, if you were going to describe us, you wouldn't describe us as liberal. If you gave us a choice between liberal and conservative, we would be conservative. In fact, probably most of us in here, if you looked at us politically, would be politically conservative. However, there's a danger there because we're conservative politics is taking us is actually different than biblical Christianity. And so as a result, we need to know what we believe, why we believe it, and how we are to live in a time like this. Because to side with certain political ventures that are headed in a conservative direction could lead us wayward as Christians. And that's what I want to touch on today because we're dealing with all sorts of nuance and challenge. We have in our day a great threat 
or I could say threats. I'm going to focus on one, and you've heard me bring it up, and if you've been in part of the Daily Thunders, I keep bringing it up. And I don't know why. If you want to say it that way, you could say, Eric, what's your fetish uh, here? Why do you keep bringing this up? It's a burden. I have a burden for us as a church to rightly appropriate the truth and the grace of God in balance towards the LGBTQ community. In various parts of the country right now, we have something called the welcoming church movement, which is a desire to open up the doors to the church and say, hey, if you're of a uh, different orientation than what it speaks about in scripture, and you believe that it is okay to live this way in a homosexual lifestyle, we just want you to know you're welcomed here without judgment. It's a, it's a movement in the church. We can't do that here. And yet it isn't because we're not welcoming. It's that we can't welcome like that. Because any more than I'm going to welcome an adulterer or a murderer and just say, hey, you're fine the way you are. We're the church of Jesus Christ. And we desire people to be in right relationship with Christ. And you can't be in right relationship with Christ while you nurse your rebellion against him. And so therefore there is a need for repentance of an old life and an entry into a new life of faith in Christ Jesus where you give up your ideology that stands directly opposed to Christ. You submit yourself to his word and you allow it to rule your life. So it puts us in a very difficult position. Which side are we going to go? Are we going to be welcoming or are we going to be Bible believing? Or as I want to present today, I believe that there is a Christian behavior that is necessary for us And it does not nullify either. It is the composite of Christ Jesus on both ends of the spectrum, if you want to say it that way, functioning in tandem. It's sort of like you can have a left arm and a right arm. What does your right arm do? It does this. What does your left arm do? It does this. And they complement each other even though there's difference in sides. Right? Left. Just think about politically. Socially. That's how we divide it. Far right, far left. Anytime you go far to anything and you get... Hyper is what it's called, like a hyper uh, view of anything, you end up with chaos. In the church of Jesus Christ, we want to hit a bullseye. We want to be in the center where Christ is. Misadventures in conservatism. It's possible to be right and yet very wrong. Now, I know I've hinted at this many times over that just because you are correct in your thinking, you could actually be wrong in your behavior, the way you live it out. The Pharisees were correct. The teachers of the law were correct. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of a virgin girl. They were right. They had it figured out. And yet they crucified the Messiah. They were correct in understanding that there is a resurrection. And yet they crucified the Christ and then put guards around his grave lest he rise again and people follow him. In other words, you can be correct and actually stand opposed to God. And what I crave for us in the midst of all this time is that we would not stand in opposition to the Christ, but that we would be in agreement with the truth. The basic tenet of the Bible-centered church. You ever heard of a Bible-believing church? In fact, when people ask me, like, I'm on a plane, what kind of church do you have? It's like, what denomination is it? Well, we're not really a denomination We're a Bible-believing church. Well, now after this, I'll be like, oh, maybe I need to add to that. But we are a Bible-believing church. We believe the Word of God is accurate, and that's how we lead from that. In other words, it doesn't matter what Eric Ludy thinks. It matters what the Bible says. 
And that's what we all heed. We all bend our knee to the same thing, and it corrects all of us, including those that are even speaking. We all are submitted to the fact that we are Bible-centered, which is the same as saying Christ-centered, but Christ has given us his word, and that's how we know how to be Christ-centered. So here's a quick enunciation of it. This is what a Bible-centered church is going to think. The church is healthiest when it holds vigorously to the word of God and purges out false doctrine, growing up its people in the truth with discernment, soundness, and solid understanding of the text. Good conservative church description right there. So what is our motto? The word of God is truth. You say, where do you get that? Well, I'll show you. Kaboom! Thy word is truth. (laughs) Hey, we can back this up scripturally, guys. The word of God is, in fact, the revelation of God to us. It is precious. The Holy Spirit carried along the writers so that we would have this precious revelation. And it is just as sound and just as good today as it was when it was first written. And it will always last. It is an unchanging word. It bears the very nature of the I am God who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shadow of turning in him. When we build upon this rock, when the winds and rains beat against our house, we will not be moved forever. It deserves an amen. That's truth. That's a biblically centered church, and that is a healthy church. It is. So, why is there any other sort of church out there? This is interesting because depending on the orientation or the way in which you pop out of the spiritual womb, either that or the way the Spirit of God works upon you, either that or your personality. I haven't quite figured out what these dynamics are. But I'm going to say there's a basic tenet of the action-oriented church. Now, here's what's going to bother you. You're going to say, wait, you just called us a biblically-centered church. I don't, I don't like that because what you just read there, I agree with. That's good. Because I don't know that we should be, that's my whole point. I don't want to be either or. I want to be both and. However, I just want you to follow my logic in this. The basic tenet of the action-oriented church The church is healthiest when it is actively demonstrating the love, mercy, and compassion of God toward a lost and dying world and is never unnecessarily ruling people out of possible inclusion because of nationality, race, class, gender, or specific sinful inclination. Boy, that was a mouthful. It's hard to say it. What is the motto? Jesus desires all men to be saved. Now, just even that last line, doesn't it sort of make you a little uncomfortable, especially on the political side? It sounds like a welcoming church. But I want you to listen more closely to what it is saying. It's not just saying, oh, everyone should you know, be treated as just as much of a believer just because they enter a church building. No. It's saying that we do not rule out certain people because of their race. Oh, well... A African-American has no hope. They have no soul. That's actually a common statement throughout history. You know, the, the Druids and the, the descendants and the Irish people, they, they wouldn't even send missionaries over there because basically they were men and women without souls. So when St. Patrick went over to Ireland, he was defying the systems of church thought in the day. And so it's very common throughout history to actually deem certain people just because of their nationality, just because of their race, just because of their gender, to be lesser than and not deserving of the truth of Jesus Christ. So what does an action-oriented church feel? It's like, no, that is incorrect. Usually these people are missionaries. 
Usually these people, they're the, they're the bleeding hearts, right? They're the ones that are like, these people need to be rescued. Okay, now, every single one of us in here is stirred at a certain level, even though that last list included the word gender, and gender is a sensitive point for us. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, Facebook had 54 genders uh, the other day, and uh, we as a Christian still only have two. Okay, that hasn't been changed, so that's, that's what I would mean. And specific sinful inclination. It doesn't really matter what your particular sin is. It doesn't remove you from the possibility of salvation. In fact, we're going after you. And so that is an important dimension. Now, as I read this, the statement was the church is healthiest when... You see the two difference? The church is healthiest when the word of God is held and we submit to it. It is the center. It purges out all false doctrine. And then the other side is the church is, church is healthiest when we are doing what the Bible says. When we are actually going out and loving. Jesus desires all men to be saved. And by the way, at this very point are major divisions where people inside the church have killed each other. Over these two points. In other words, they have been such a sharp division in the church. I know our church doesn't divide over these. We, both, we look at both those like, hey, amen, amen, amen. That's because that's our culture. We desire to be both a Bible-believing church and an action-oriented church. However, it is very easy in our culture right now to lean one direction and to begin to neglect the other. What's our scripture? God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That means even the Druids in Ireland? That means even the African Americans in Africa? I mean that, or in Africa, African Americans in America? That's, uh, do they have a soul? We all know. That is ridiculous. That is ignorance at the highest levels. That is a distortion. And yet... Many Christians throughout history have participated in this distortion. What I desire is for us to not participate in a distortion in our day just because the political winds sweep and blow does not mean we blow with them. In Nazi Germany, the political winds and the social winds blew. There were 45 million Christians in Nazi Germany. 45 million Protestant Christians, I should say. And I forgot what the amount was. It was like less than 1% that participated in the confessing church that actually stood up and said, this is wrong. Guys, you cannot treat the Jews this way. You know what? When anyone stood up, they were treated like the Jews. So it's better to just keep your mouth shut. Even if you see the church going wayward, even if you see them sort of siding with Hitler, just keep your mouth shut. You see, we as a church can't do that. We have to always remain the confessing church. The BC, the biblically centered, versus the action-oriented, the AO. Every Christian should accept this tension and be exercised by this tug and pull of God's ways. God never once has diminished his word. His word is a constant. It is always the same. It is unchanging, and it is no shadow of turning. And we as the church of Jesus Christ need to build upon it. And if there is something that is attacking it, something that is tempting to compromise it and dilute it, we say no. And we purge it out. That is still a truth. However, we must be a church that is action-oriented, that is known for love, not for just exclusivity. 
We are a, a body of believers that is seeking the lost, that desires all men to be saved. So here's our little picture that I'm going to build on. We have a circle and we have Christ right in the center. And we have a right and a left. I, I don't know who originally decided to describe it this way. Because all of us conservatives, it had to be a conservative because conservative is right. Isn't, isn't that, doesn't that sound like it would have to be a conservative that came up with this? However, to the right you have the biblically centered. And we have a tendency to lean conservative. The moment you make that your description is the moment you begin to lean right. I'm not going to say that's wrong. I'm going to say it's right. It's still in the expression of Christ. And then you have the action-oriented. What I'm going to say is Christ was both. And I can spend the whole message just proving that Jesus Christ was both and. He is the Word of God made flesh. He is the full enunciation of Scripture. He is the fulfillment of all righteousness. He never violates one word in it. And yet, his motivation is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the entire movement of God is action. The Hebrew and the Greek are both action languages. They both are based in verbs. All of them, both of them have root verbs. In other words, the languages that God even used are action languages. And Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He is the action of God brought to this earth. He's not just truth, but he's an action of love and grace. So when the right goes too far, so you could start right and be biblically centered and you can start to veer off. When the right goes too far, it begins to revile that which is opposed. Okay, now this is a heavy duty danger in any culture, but you have a tendency to see that which is opposite, that which is going left. And what do you say? Boy, those guys are idiots. You know, it, it might be uh, true. They're, they, they're not using their brain, right? It's foolishness what they're doing. However, you're falling for the same foolishness by giving way to revilement. But revilement is usually where it starts, where you begin to look at someone and begin to diminish their value as a human. And you even start to hope that something bad happens to them. And when you hear about something bad happening to them, you get a little grin in your soul. It's like, huh, good, they deserved it. And so we also have it turning into radical hatred. When hatred begins to be spawned, by that very revilement, you're moving in a very dangerous territory, which leads to a radical separation, which almost every, if, if, I will go through a little bit of history in Nazi Germany on this exact point, but what you're going to see is this exact flow. Most of you don't realize that Nazism is conservatism gone wrong. I, I know, isn't that a little, we always think it must be liberal, because everything that goes bad must be liberal, when in actuality, Hitler was a conservative. He was a really bad one, but he was a conservative. Radical separation leads to radical purging and cleansing, which leads to radical annihilation. When he declared war on the Eastern Front in World War II, he handled it completely different than his war against uh, the other European countries like France and, and Great Britain. He called it a war of annihilation, and he commanded his generals that not a woman or child would be left alive. All civilians annihilated. Why? Well, because they were Bolsheviks. Communists didn't deserve to live because ideologically they were on the opposite end of the spectrum and they were the greatest threat to Nazi Germany. Purge them! Kill them! It's exactly what it led to. It was annihilation. Okay? So, not good. 
when the left goes too far. They begin to redefine terms. Everything has changed. You study any type of movement in the liberal agenda, what they want to do is make uh, peace, war, love, hate. I mean, everything gets redefined. It's a weird process. It's the exact same process we have today. Gender, marriage, all these things need to be redefined. One of the big movements today is the word of God. It's no longer the word of God. It's just the word of some wise men. So when you call it the word of God, people think it's higher than it should be. You don't call it the word of God. You don't call Jesus God. He's just a good man. He's a prophet. They start redefining everything. Why? Because they can't fit their worldview into the actual hard truth. They need to change it. This has always been the process. So you start with radical redefinition. Then you end up with radical justification. Well, I can live this way. Why? Because I rewrote the Bible to fit what I wanted. So now I'm justified in my behavior. And then radical revilement. Now there's people that are like, hey, you can't do that. So what happens? The same thing that happened on the right. You begin to revile those that are standing against you, which leads to radical hatred and ultimately radical annihilation. Both sides really get interested in killing each other. It's called a civil war. So here's what we have. We have Christ in the middle, and then we have the right-leaning conservative and the left-leaning liberal. Okay, this is very familiar to many of us. This is what we grew up with. There's always that tension. And a lot of people would say, this is just what makes our country great. Is you have people that lean both right and left, and we end up somewhere in the middle in some moderate state. However, we all know we don't end up with Christ just because of this tension. I'm just saying Christ has the balance. In who he is, he is both and. He fulfills both truths. But if you take either to either side, you end up eliminating Christ out of it. And you end up with conservative values on one side that can be completely empty of Christ. You could live conservatively and not know Christ at all. It doesn't save you. And yet many people think that they're saved by their conservatism. You're not saved by your conservatism. You're not saved by homeschooling, for instance. You're not saved by voting Republican. That doesn't save you. That isn't how the Word of God says it. That isn't how it works. And yet somehow we get this in our noggin. And we sort of feel more spiritual. And that's exactly what happens in both directions. The liberals feel more spiritual because they're standing up for the underdog. And they're doing things that they feel are noble and right. Meanwhile, just because you're standing up for underdogs does not mean you know Christ. It does not mean you have salvation. So you have these ideologies that are headed in opposite directions. Uh-oh. Adolf Hitler. Someone asked me if, we were, if I was going to talk about Eric Ludendorff. And I said, no, we're moving on past Eric Ludendorff. Don't want to bring up him again. Adolf Hitler. He is what is termed Nazism. Uh, hyper-deranged, far-right conservatism. Big words. Okay, that's just like... He's heading off the charts to the right. Okay, he's not doing good, guys. He is abandoning Christ, and he's heading towards delusional. Oh, there's a picture of him, guys. Sort of a fascinating guy to just look at. I mean, most people would say he's one of the most evil men that ever lived, right? However, at the same time that he was alive, there was a leader of Russia, or the communist, the Soviet Union, that... Some people would argue is even worse. Okay, I have a picture of him too. But it's interesting because they were complete opposites. You couldn't get more opposites. So this guy's our conservative. Now, I hate to even identify with conservatism after I stick him up on the screen. Because this is, this is evil. It is. So what was his philosophy? Think about this in light of a conservative church. Destroy all that is not pure. All that is not clean. All that is not like... You see, a conservative church believes in purifying. 
which is true. We need to purify, but we don't purify ourselves of people. We purify ourselves of sin. And so you see the delusional dimension of this that begins to creep out. Oh, no. Joseph Stalin. Communism. Hyper-deranged far-left liberalism. That means he went left extremely far. There he is, guys, in 1941. Destroy all that stand opposed. So he's creating a utopia, guys. This guy is going to create something that takes the little people and gives them opportunity. And all those wealthy royals that think that they are boss no more. Now we're going to let the little people have life and opportunity. You stand against it, we'll kill you. What if a little guy stands against you? We'll kill you. In other words, it is like a very strange idea, but at first it sounds so good. Everything about it is so good because there's so much oppression. After 300 years under the czar of Russia, now finally we have someone who will give food and thought and time and jobs to the little people. And yet... His entire belief system basically says destroy all that stand opposed, all that dare disagree, and all that defy this proposed utopia. This is not new. Just go back 2,000 years. So it's interesting. In the time of Christ, do you know that you have the same right and left? You have the Pharisees, whoo, off to the right. You have the Sadducees. Which direction am I looking? The, the Pharisees off to the right. The Sadducees off to the left. You had the conservatives and the liberals. One thing that's similar about both of them, because they're very different than each other, is they both hated Christ. They're the ones that crucified Christ. It was the religious leaders of their day. Now, the ironies in all of this, considering it was the Jews that did it, and then in in Nazi Germany, you have the Jews literally being the ones uh, persecuted. I mean, it's based on the same principle, the same logic points. However, look at... Look at this. This is just the story of how they treat the truth. The Christians end up being the threat to both sides. The Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. The Jews sought all the more to kill him. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. It's not just to talk to him and try and convert him. He was a threat to everything they held, and they wanted him dead. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? They cried out again, Crucify him! Then Pilate said to them, What? Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him! They shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now, what you'll see is that the response to Christ is violent. It is extreme. These are conservatives that are wielding their position. And what are they doing? They're bringing about death as the result. Now, here's what my concern is. We have a very, very real tension for us in the church today. And the political winds want to bait us. I mean, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories out there right now. You know, back in the day, back in uh, Nazi Germany, the conspiracy theory was that the Jews were in positions of power, they had the wealth, and they were scheming to rule the world. This is what, this is what Hitler believed. And so as a result, he wanted them destroyed. 
What is the word today to all of us? The LGBTQ community is conspiring. They're banded together. They have all political power and position. They have all political correctness and the winds of power blowing in their direction. And they want to take over the world and destroy Christians. Hey, I'm just giving, giving it the way. In the hidden news that Christians read. In the stuff that we think when we're back at home and not listening to CNN. We're thinking, oh, they're out to get us. Maybe true. How do you respond to that? You see, if you desire your opponent or that which is opposing you to die, what's the difference between you and the Pharisees? What's the difference between you and Hitler? So, here's our chart. We have the the middle section with Christ, and we have a right-leaning, biblically-centered, and a left-leaning, action-oriented, both of which are very healthy. However, if you take them either direction you end up with extreme conservatism and extreme liberalism. Pharisaism, Sadduceeism, both crucified Christ. The center of the center. It's not a doctrine, an action, a philosophy, or an idea. It's a person. So if you want to have a healthy perspective on life, culture, everything, you need to have a healthy perspective on Christ. It's not an ideology. It's not Nazism or communism. It's like, which one do you lean towards? Hopefully neither. Hopefully you lean towards Christ as your key belief. What do I believe? I believe Jesus. Which should lead to who Christ is coming out of your life. Not Hitler, not Stalin. You see, it's a person that we believe in. The very center of the center. And that comes out of Revelation 5, 6 and and also chapter 7 as I will read. And I looked and behold in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Revelation 7, 17, the lamb who is in the midst, which is on a mesos, that means the middle of the middle, the center of the center. In the center of the center of everything that matters, that very throne of grace, what do you see? In the center of the center, in the middle of the very middle is a lamb that was slain. This is what we build our lives upon. We don't build it on the fact that government should not be over Uh, the people like they are trying to do in the liberal camp. I mean, the Democrats, they're trying to get more power to government. The Republicans are trying to decentralize power and give it to the states and give it to the individuals so that the individual home can make a decision for how they're going to raise their kid. They shouldn't be deciding that in Washington. Some of you are like, amen, amen. I have political views. I have very defined ideas of what I think is the correct outflow of the scripture towards a government. However... I need to make sure that the middle of the middle of my belief system isn't gun rights or gun control. It is not Republican or Democrat. It is Jesus. We as Christians are not defined by that. The political or the social viewpoints, even though we will have them, we are defined first and foremost and willing to give up everything else if necessary to hold to Jesus and him crucified. Paul did know more than Jesus and him crucified, yet he determined to not know anything more when he came to the church at Corinth. Lest they be distracted from what is the center, which is the lamb that was slain in the onomesos, in the middle of the middle, in the center of the center of all reality. That is what we build from. And in this person is both truth, biblically centeredness, and grace, action-oriented. You see, grace is an action. It is God doing it for us. 
And so when we are saved by grace, now God moves in and what does he do? He makes us action figures. He makes us superheroes to go and rescue, to do what he would do, to do what the grace of God is desiring to do in this world. The liberals have it right on that point. We are supposed to be doing something. You don't just have a good theology of love. You have a good practice of love. You don't just have a good theology of humility. You have the practice of humility. You see, if you just have the right thoughts and you don't live them out, what is the good of them? It leads to death. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Look at both of those. Mercy and truth are the two opposites. Truth, the biblically centered. Mercy, the bleeding heart liberals. They've met each other. Where? In Christ. At the cross. You see, where that lamb was slain, that's where they met. The full expression of God Almighty is found in that cross. And you have mercy and truth meeting together. You have righteousness, the blazing white perfection of moral behavior. Mixed with peace, they have kissed. You have both sides tied together in that lamb that was slain. That lamb that was slain is the very essence of what we believe. That's what we hold high. You can't just pick one side or the other. You allow both to be activated within you. Look at Exodus 34. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Speaking of Moses, he stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. I think that's an interesting statement. Jehovah, that's all capital L-O-R-D. Comes and descends in a cloud and God, Jehovah, proclaims the name of Jehovah. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, which is the I am, that was, is, and always will be the same. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. You see, at first blush, you can say, yeah, see how soft he is. See how good he is. He is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands. See, he has mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By no means clearing the guilty. What an interesting balance statement that is. You have a God who is willing to forgive, radically given to forgiveness, but by no means clearing the guilty. Oh, what was what, that statement in there for? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This God doesn't change from being perfectly righteous, but he is loving, merciful, and forgiving. He's both and. You see, the cross is necessary. All of us are guilty, and he cannot clear us without the shed blood of Jesus. But he is forgiving. He so loves and he is so merciful that he has created a way in and through the Son. You know the Jews were saved? They weren't saved by keeping the law any more than you would be. They were saved by faith in the coming Messiah. They believed that God would keep his word. And he did. You see, they looked forward. We look back at the same thing. All of the Old Testament spoke of the one day in which he would come and remove the iniquity of the land. It spoke of the one who would come and fulfill all righteousness. And they believed. And those that believed, that was their salvation. Same with us. It's always been the Messiah. It's always been his shed blood. But it is a fact. He is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. 
but he does not clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Sin is still very serious in our God. You know that that didn't change because of the cross? Sin is still very serious to God. The exceeding sinfulness of sin is still extremely serious. In fact, the moment we begin to demote the incredible significance of sin and what it has done to this world is the moment we demote the cross of its value. The reason we must keep a sharp line on the fact that sin is grievous is because that's what makes the cross elevate. You understand the value of the cross when you understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, without Jesus, what you have is law. And that law will stone probably every single one of us in here justly. However, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It was not the diminishment or the annulment of his righteousness. It was the fulfillment of all that is righteous in the Son... And that when he dies, he bears the just penalty that we deserve. And so anyone that would humble themselves, repent and believe in that Savior, can be spared the consequence of sin. Because he bore it for them. But outside of Jesus, there is no clearing of the guilt. And so as a result, as Christians, we do not diminish the standard of righteousness. We must uphold it. But we uphold it with an eye towards mercy. To recognize that anyone, anyone, and that means anyone who would humble themselves, anyone who would repent and turn and believe in him, there is salvation. No matter race and nationality, no matter gender, no matter your specific sexual inclination, that doesn't stand in the way. Our God is merciful to thousands. Our God is ready to save, but we must not lower the standard. It is not just an open church building that leads people to Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so therefore we must still uphold that which is true in the process of expressing the mercy, the long-suffering, and the love of Jesus Christ. Being right and being wrong simultaneously. If you speak truth, preach truth, and teach truth, but not as Christ would, then you are spewing error. That sound a little contradictory at first? In other words, if I speak truth, but I don't speak it the way Christ would speak it, I speak it with spite, with hate, with malice, I could be speaking truth. I could tell you all sorts of things that the Bible says will happen to sinners. I could. And they would all be true. However, what Jesus is interested in is salvation. He desires all men to be saved. Remember that AO? You see, you could have the truth and be right, but be wrong in your delivery of it. God still desires. He is yearning. However, many of us feel in anger towards those that have rejected the truth, those that are destroying our nation, those that are destroying people we love, and we would prefer that they leave this world. You ever had the thought of, like, maybe moving to a different country? You know, because this one's going south. 
You ever thought of, you know, cause I remember uh, someone said that if Trump won, then they were going to leave the country. And then there was quite a few, maybe of those in this room that said, uh, <clears throat> okay, it's your time to leave. And yet I want us to test all of that that's stirring inside of us. You see, who did Christ die for? Do we think it's an exclusive club of just us in this room? Or do we believe that that person is valued in God's eyes? And do we long for them to be saved the way God does? For truth is a person. And the rightness of truth cannot ever be separated from the nature of truth without, without emptying truth of its living personality, its life, purpose, and power. You see, truth isn't just actual data. And you can get it right. Two plus two equals four. Truth is a person. So therefore, it has a nature. It has a behavior. And so if you're going to share truth, you need to share it with the same nature of God. The same purpose of God. The same intent of God. What is he after? He's not just after correctness. He's after the expression of love. You will know my disciples by their love for one another. It's not by their correctness of truth. It's by their action, actually, that we are known. Which is a crazy statement. And you can't have correct action without correct truth. So it's, a, it's both and. But, still important to note. The conservative misadventures of Hitler. Sorry to bring these up. Now, here's what I want you to note. I need you to, for a second, forget that Hitler's a really, really, really bad guy. I know that's hard for us. Because all of us in this room, if there's one bad guy you know in history, it's Hitler. Hitler is just one of those classic, iconic pictures of evil. And yet, I want you to, for a second, just think of it from a different angle. Adolf Hitler believed that his people had been unduly persecuted and bullied, stabbed in the back. Okay, now, if you believe that there is something wrong going on out there, and your people that you loved, he loved the German people. He loved the German nation. This man won the Iron Cross in World War I. He suffered and was hit, went to the hospital, recovered, went back out into World War I. This guy suffered greatly for his people, and guess what? He felt like they were betrayed. He felt like they should have won that war, and because of disinformation and some very bad stuff that went on, mainly done by the Jews and the Bolsheviks, that they were stabbed in the back. There was false news going on. Fake news. This was not true. Okay, you following me? This is what Hitler felt. Do you blame him? He could have been right. And yet, those German people were the chosen people. In his mind. Okay, now I, I know. See, I'm German, so you think I'd get excited about it. However, I'm not at all excited. They were the chosen people. They were God's select brand. That should be the ones to take the lead in culture, in world development. And yet they were oppressed. It was all these other nations of the earth that had colonized and had rulership. But they weren't the Germans. They didn't have the intellect of the Germans. They didn't have the ability of the Germans. The Germans ruled in the arts and in the intelligence arena. And yet they're being oppressed and held back. I mean, you can sort of get in his skin, can't you? He got all sorts of things against him. They were the chosen people, the greater race of men and women, uniquely situated to change and better the world. The world seemed blind to the fact that it was being ravaged by a disease. So you look out into this world, and what do you see? There's a disease. It's killing them. It's killing the people of this world. Well, Hitler was convinced that he saw the disease too. Now, the disease that he saw isn't the same disease we see. See, we see sin, and we see ideology that is wicked. We see demonic uh, doctrines of demons that are sweeping through the land. What did Hitler see? 
He saw Jews. He saw communists. He saw a disease and he knew that if that wasn't dealt with, the world was going down. And he saw this blight upon humanity. He saw this great error and gave his life to the eradication of it. Well done, Hitler. Well done. Standing ovation. That's noble. That's a good conservative right there. You see, we know more than what's on the, in that paragraph. However, I want you to just for a second identify with the tension in it. Hitler stood up for his beliefs and greatly suffered for it. No, we can't even say that about most Christians today. This man, before Nazism came into any kind of powerful position, was on the, it was the off-scouring of the culture. He knew that there was a problem and he was willing to suffer for it. He planned a coup attempt on the German government, failed. He was imprisoned in 1923. His passions for bringing purity to his people and expunging the error and disease from this world had gone wholly unappreciated. You ever felt that like that as a Christian? As Jeremiah, he was a prophet in chains. As John the Baptist, he was a voice crying in the wilderness, now cast off in a Herodian cell. Can't you just feel it? This guy has suffered for what he believes. And what does he believe? He believes in a better world. He believes that there's lies out there. There's dangerous people out there. And they should be dealt with. Hey. So Hitler's in prison. He writes down his struggle. Which actually is that's what Mein Kampf means. My struggle. While in prison. And in this book he enunciated his vision for helping his people out of this terrible darkness. See when we think of Mein Kampf. We think of his wicked dastardly plan. What was his plan? To help. He, I mean, however deranged he was, which he was, he believed that he had a plan to help the German people. Out of this state of decay, he could help them financially, socially, politically, and practically. And guess what? He did. If you measure Hitler on just governmental leadership and what he did for the financial aspects of his country, oh, how about rallying the people, the strongest military formation maybe ever in such a short period of time? And that's under... Uh, the Treaty of Versailles, which eliminated them from even being able to build a military. How did he do it? Well, he's a smart guy. So, with the startling rise of Hitler to power in 1933, Hitler suddenly found himself in a situation of dramatic influence and uniquely poised to implement all his ideas and dreams. He could now remove the blight, the disease, and all that was impure from his nation. He could help them now finally be empowered, overcoming chosen people that changed the world for the better. It was time for the evil to be removed. It was time to purge all that was impure. If you had dictatorial authority in this country to remove any blight or anything that is hindering our country, how would you use it? Would you use it like Hitler or would you use it like Christ? We are Christians. We are not to be Hitlers. Due to this perverted conservatism, known as Nazism, Hitler became directly responsible for the deaths of 11 million people in concentration camps, estimated over 6 million of them Jews, and indirectly responsible for 60 million deaths in total via World War II. Not good. It's possible to be right and yet be very wrong. Hitler, Stalin. You look either direction and you have chaos. I could have made this message about Stalin. I don't think we lean in the direction of Stalin. And I'm not saying we lean in the direction of Hitler. It's just, if you keep going in a direction, you want those that are antagonists to you and to your belief system dead. We as Christians can never go in that direction. We must stay in Christ, 
in the midst of these political, this political tsunami that is swirling around us, you give us a side, we side with Jesus. We don't side with conservatism. We don't side with liberalism. We side with Jesus. And ironically, that doesn't make us friends of either side. We become a thorn in either side. You know, the Christians in Nazi Germany that dared stand up to Hitler's extremism were killed, just like the Jews. In other words, extreme conservatism has a problem. And that is Christians that dare speak. So some of my favorite uh, stories, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an incredible story, ends up being hanged before the end of World War II. Why? What did he do? He stood up against extreme conservatism. He was a Christian. You see, we as Christians cannot allow the extremities to carry us. We do allow Jesus to define us. A test case. The LGBTQ movement. So, I'm going to hazard a guess that if I could figure anything out, uh, you could put ISIS in there, extreme Islam, and what you have is what we would consider as Christians our arch nemesis. The culture is attempting to position us against them. When as Christians, are you supposed to be positioned against lost people? And so yes, it's true that they may want you dead, but that has nothing to do with our discussion. Yes, it may be true that they're trying to alter and subvert the the culture that we have grown up with, our our beloved America and our constitutional government. It could be true. That makes no difference in how we behave. Our great end is not a constitutional government. It's the kingdom of heaven. Do I appreciate a constitutional government? I do. And if you give me a vote, I know how I'd vote. However, with my life, I need to first and foremost in every situation be willing to even give up my vote and vote for Jesus Christ. It's my King Jesus and his behavior in and through me and in and through us that is higher. So the LGBTQ movement. So the biblically centered church that starts with thy word is truth. What does the word of God say? It's actually pretty clear and uncomfortably so. What I'm about to read is politically incorrect. According to scripture, the practice of homosexuality is a sin. To forsake God's word and to recreate truth in your own image is an ancient sin that finds its roots in the mouth of the serpent. It is evil in the sight of the Lord to perpetrate this form of rebellion and it is evil to continue in it without shame. It is hostility toward our God. It is a behavior that is clearly under judgment. As Christians, we must separate from this behavior, get far away from its stain and its allure. Not even a hint of this practice should ever enter our thoughts, words, or actions. It'd be interesting to see how you... I wish I could test your souls on that. I'm just giving you what the Bible says. This is dangerous stuff. People have been destroyed. Entire... Uh, nations have been destroyed because they allowed this to control them and it overtook them like a blight and a disease. True. Now, that last line there is interesting because it says as Christians, or his last two sentences, as Christians we must separate from this behavior. So how does a biblically centered Christian oftentimes interpret that? Physically. But it's a spiritual separation. You see, if I have a thought come into my head to bait me and entice me towards sin, what should I do? Separate from it. I don't participate in that thought. It's not a part of me. But what we end up doing is separating from the people themselves. And we act like they are diseased. 
But that's the great danger that we as conservatives are facing. To the point that many of us struggle with normal interaction with someone that has a lisp. Someone that behaves a certain way or dresses a certain way. We will walk as far away from them as possible because we feel uncomfortable. When in actuality, right there. This is precisely what we should get excited to say. Oh Lord Jesus, give me words to speak right now. Give me opportunity because this is precisely the people that you have a heart for. So, the AO, the action-oriented. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So what does the Bible say there? These men and women are caught in this practice and behavior, are dearly loved and sought after by the Holy Spirit. God yearns to see them awakened, convicted, rescued, and saved. He desires us to seek them out, express the love of God to them, and yearn, just as he does, to see them rescued from their sin. As conservative Christians, listen to the extremes that we can go. We are being baited to revile this band. That's the danger. It starts with revilement. To desire their destruction. To hate them for the damage they are doing to our precious country. We are being enticed to stand against them, to avoid them, to call for their just punishment. After all, it is written, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. For this cause God gave them unto vile affections. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. I mean, God even seems to be throwing them out. Someone dares go in this direction. God is throwing them out. Why would I reach out to them? It's a very, very important balance in your understanding of how to live out Christianity. When someone entertains sin and gives themselves to sin, here's the way I would describe it. God gives a buffer of grace. But when we choose to rebel, he will pull back and retract his protection. And what happens? The enemy has a field day with us. Why would God do that? To awaken us. In other words, when that grace is pulled back, it's as a show of mercy. God could have killed Pharaoh right in the very beginning and just taken his people. Do you not think he was powerful enough? Instead, you could look at it this way. God was long-suffering with Pharaoh and gave him plenty of opportunity to repent. And the same is true with each of us. However, each plague that comes into the life of a sinner is an awakening opportunity for them to see the mercy of God because God could destroy, but instead he is long-suffering to give them opportunity. When you are sharing with a soul, it is not your choice to determine if they are without remedy and without hope. That's not your decision. You see, God is the capital J judge. That is his business. Your business is to love and to give hope because God desires all men to be saved. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that says, when you preach, you can preach like a Calvinist, but when you minister the gospel and evangelize, you better evangelize like an Arminianist. Of course, if you didn't understand that, it's probably better. <laughs> In other words, every soul is a soul that is ripe for the love of Jesus. We do not judge which ones are worthy to receive the love because no one is worthy. We give love freely because he gave it to us. And even the most infamous of sinners is the very target of our soul and our attentions and our prayers. So when we head in this direction of the BC, the spirit of Hitler is knocking, the spirit of the Pharisees is afoot. So while the liberal Christians, this is what's happening today, okay guys, and this is what many of us have witnessed, which is why it's difficult for us to know how to land our feet on this. 
They are being baited to overlook the sin of the LGBTQ community and to accept this perversion as if it were righteousness. Our culture is actually deeming it more right now to be disturbed in this area, to have a dysphoria and a confusion about your gender. That's actually, oh, you're willing to acknowledge that you're actually more righteous. It's a weird state of affairs that we're in. And to declare these struggling people justified without need of repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. You're fine just the way you are. We don't want to change you here. That actually isn't true. But this is where it is heading in the liberal church. They are being enticed to stand. The liberal church is being enticed to stand against the clear word of God. And to even avoid it. Because you don't want to actually study the word of God on these points. Lest it really bring more confusion. And they're choosing error over truth, all under the banner of love, mercy, and compassion. Because God is love, we don't need to worry about what the scriptures say. We're just going to summarize it this way. God is love, and we're redefining love. And so what you have is a form of chaos that leads to, actually, a greater danger for those that are stuck in this lifestyle and this behavior. If you were a liar, I would hope in this church that you would find... A response to that lying behavior that would correct it and say, guy, this can't go on. This is not how God works. He is truth. If you were an adulterer, I would hope that you would find in this community the proper version of love that would say, this can't remain. This will kill your marriage. This will kill your family. You cannot live this way. If you were a glutton, I hope you would find in this community that which is necessary to bring a proper correction to your soul. You see, as Christians, we don't pick and choose sins as, oh, those that we overlook and these that we don't. We hold to the word of God. And we let God define how we are supposed to live. And we allow the Holy Spirit to bring and agree with that in conviction. So, when we head in this direction, the spirit of Stalin is knocking. The spirit of the Sadducees is afoot. In the midst of the extremes, examples in World War II, history of history, sorry, examples in World War II history of Christian Christians. You see, it's not conservative Christians, it's not liberal Christians. It's ironic. These stories are all in the midst of this. You take the country of Romania, and they are overcome by the Nazis. Did you know that Richard and Sabina suffered under the Nazis before they suffered under the Soviets and the and the communists? And so most of the stories we know of Richard and Sabina are in the communist years. We don't realize that they were Jews and suffering under Hitler before. Could you imagine being in Romania and having to be under Hitler and then under Stalin? Talk about whiplash. And so what we have is Richard Wormbrandt. I remember hearing this story when I was young. It had such a big impact upon me. This man suffered decades in prison, most of it in solitary confinement, extreme torture in his life. And one of the reasons was because of a communist Romanian named Nicolae Ceausescu, who took control of his nation when the communists came in and was given great power. And he, he pillaged his own people and built for himself a palace. And this man, Richard Wormbrandt, suffered greatly in prison because this guy turned a blind eye to his own people and a blind eye to Richard Wormbrandt's own situation. And... When he found out that the revolution in Timisoara had happened, it was sweeping through the nation, and Nicolae Ceausescu was captured, and the people of Romania wanted him to die a cruel death. Richard Wormbrandt, even in prison, makes an appeal that they would show mercy to him. They would show kindness to him. Listen to what he says. He is just a little kid that was injured and hurt, and he's never known the love of Christ. Please. Give him an opportunity to hear the hope of Jesus. Who does that? 
This is your arch enemy. Look at what you've suffered because of him. That's a Christian Christian. It's not a conservative Christian. It's not a liberal Christian. It's a Christian Christian. Sabina Wormbrandt. Her response to the man responsible for the death of her family. So as the story goes, Richard Wormbrandt finds out about this one man who was functioning as a traitor under the Nazis and had turned in multiple Christians, uh, and even though he was Romanian, and he had sided with them to gain favors and to gain money. And as a result, Sabina's family had been killed because of this man. So Richard Wormbrandt goes over to meet him, goes straight in. These guys are, you read their story, you're just like, what are you guys doing? You stay far away from that guy. But this guy needs the love of Jesus. Imagine the guilt that he is feeling. So Richard Wormbrandt finds out that he's staying at someone's house and he asks the guy if he can come over. And he literally confronts the guy with the truth of what he's done. He gives truth to him. But then he says, but there is hope for you if you will humble yourself and believe in Jesus Christ. And then he says, he says, you are responsible for the death of my wife's family. And he said, but to prove to you, this is classic Richard Wormbrand, because he says this in multiple times in his life, to prove to you the power of Christ's love to overcome hate, my wife does not know I'm here right now. Will you go back to my home with me, and I will call her out of her room, and you watch her response to you when she finds out who you are. So they come over, he cannot believe that, but he so desires the mercy of God. He so craves it that he actually says okay to this. And he comes out, And he's standing in the living room and Richard goes in and I think he wakes up Sabina and tells her to come out. And she composes herself, comes out and they declare who he is. She walks up to him and kisses him. And as Sabina Wormbrandt is quoted as saying, she has kissed two men in her life. The man she loves, her husband, and the man who killed her family. Okay, what's that? That's what we're after. Whatever that is, people. Betsy Tenboom, her response to the kicking, spitting, hateful Nazi guards. Same war, same extremes. How does a Christian Christian respond? Corey wanted to beat them up because they were kicking her sister who was already dying. And Betsy's like, Corey, Corey, please, no, give them love. Give them love. They don't know Christ. Give them love. Give them Jesus. Corey Tenboom, her response to the guards responsible for killing her family. Do you, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the moment. I think it's in Tramp for the Lord, where Corey Tenboom goes back to Germany to speak and to share the gospel. But she is reluctant. She is really struggling still inwardly with what has happened. Her, I mean, her, her dad was killed. Her sister was killed. The suffering in her family. Her cousin was killed. I mean, she had all sorts of death in her family. Her life has been ravaged because of this. And yet, she feels called to go back there and love the people that hated her. And after one of her messages, one of the prison guards who she recognizes but doesn't recognize her comes up and says, I was a guard in Ravensbrook, and your message has so impacted me to think that there is a God who would even forgive me. And he sticks out his hand. And she says that it felt like the passing of an eon. But she said, at first, I was so repulsed by this man. But then it was as if the love of God flowed into me and through me. And I reached out to embrace him. You see, what we have is other than this world. 
Hitler didn't have it. Stalin didn't have it. It's the spirit of God. It's the spirit of love. We don't need to function like the animals. We can function like the royalty of heaven. And even when we're spat upon, even when we're struck in one cheek, we can turn to them the other also. Even when the steel-toed boot goes into our rib, out of us can flow love. And even when those that have killed our family come into our living room, we can come up to them and show them the mercy of God through a kiss. Yes, it is otherworldly. Yes, it is unnatural in every regard. But it is Jesus. The too dirty lie. Oh, Christians, stay away. This is, this is the lie that we get all the time. They're too dirty. Don't touch them. Don't touch the unclean thing. Don't acknowledge it. Keep walking. Don't look at it, for it is less than human, beyond the reach of the Redeemer. It is something fit only for destruction designed to fuel the fires of hell. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how the Jews looked at the Gentiles. They believed that they were only here to fuel the fires of hell. And so they wouldn't touch them. They wouldn't talk with them. They gave them no hope in this world. Why do you think it was rather challenging for them to understand that Jesus came also for them? Are we willing to understand that Jesus also came for those that oppose us? So I'm going to change this. That was a lie. The too dirty lie. Now this is the opposite. This is the especially them truth. Oh Christian, go after them. My heart yearns to express my love, my mercy, and my care to that one right there. I realize that they may seem dirty to you, but remember you were dirty too when I found you. Please go to them and touch them with my love. Touch them with my compassion. Touch them with my winsome heavenly warmth. Smile at them with my smile. Give to them your best just as I gave to you. Sacrifice for them just as I sacrificed for you. Don't let their hostility, their reviling, and their hatred stop you. Christian, go after them. Taking the East End. You guys remember we've talked about taking the East End. It's the Salvation Army, William and Catherine Booth. And you have the West End of London, which was the most affluent place on earth in the late 1800s. And then you have the East End, which was likely the most destitute place on earth. They're a mile apart. It's just extraordinary. And so who in their right mind would go to the East End, talk about dirty, and they don't want the gospel there. Just leave them be. Stay in the West End, guys. What has God called us to? To hang out in the West End? Or to go to the East End and take it for Jesus Christ? That's what I love. The Salvation Army isn't what it used to be. But I tell you what, there was something very, very special about the Salvation Army when it started. Listen to this description of the Salvation Army in the very beginning. One memorable day in July 1865, after exploring the streets in an East End district where he was to conduct a mission... The terrible poverty, vice, and degradation of these needy people struck home to his heart, speaking of William Booth. He arrived at his Hammersmith home just before midnight and greeted his waiting Catherine with these words, Darling, I have found my destiny. She understood him. Together they administered God's grace to God's poor in many places. Now they were to spend their lives bringing deliverance to Satan's captives in the evil jungle of London slums. One day William took Bramwell, his son, I think his son was 10 years old at this time, by the way, which really, I, I've like gone over this many times in my life, thinking of when Hudson was 10 as when I came across this quote. One day, William took Bramwell, his son, into an East End pub, which was crammed full of dirty, intoxicated creatures. Seeing the appalled look on his son's face, he said gently, Bramwell, these are our people, the people I want you to live for. What would that look like today? I don't even, don't even really want to use my imagination of what that would look like today, but most of us are separatists in the classic sense socially. You don't bring your 10-year-old son into that 
if we're going to teach the church properly, we need to teach them truth and righteousness. We need to teach them God's word. But we also need to teach them God's love and his action. That God wants us to adopt this as an especially them mission. Strategy of William Booth. When you come into a new place, this is what he taught his, uh, his men that he would send out to establish something in a different country, in a different village. When you come into a new place, find the most notorious sinner in the village and go after him. Here is the philosophy. If the most notorious, most infamous sinner gives his life to Jesus, you know what happens in that community? Everyone is so startled. They want to know how in the world that guy could be changed so dramatically. That was their strategy. What's our strategy? It'd help to have a strategy, wouldn't it? I have a burden not to become a welcoming church in the classic sense of our American culture, but to be a pursuing church. To be a church that does not try and get away from the dirty, but actually pursues it on purpose. Bromwell, these are our people. What does it look like? I can't tell you, but there's a burden that we do not become so right that we are wrong. There's a desire not to compromise the truth in order to try and gain adherence to the truth, but at the same time to uphold the word, but to live it in love. Christian Christians. What is this strange and amazing blend of BC and AO called? There's a name for it in scripture. It's simply referred to in scripture as... Love. You see, love upholds truth and it lives with grace. Both and. It's Jesus at the cross. Jesus at the cross upholds all truth without a speck of unrighteousness. He fulfills all righteousness. All the law is satisfied in the person of Christ and yet it is a glorious outpouring of love and mercy and long-suffering and forgiveness. Bewildering love. That's what it is. We as Christians are supposed to not just be marked by lowercase l love. Anyone can have that. A husband and a wife can have lowercase l love. This is capital L love that only comes from the throne room of grace. And it is bewildering to the world around. There is no explanation for how Sabina Wormbrand could walk up to that man and kiss him. That is otherworldly. It is precisely what I want us exercising. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. No argument. You see, if we're going to hold the word of God and be biblically centered, we have to be action-oriented. We have to be marked by love. We are commanded to do both, not one or the other. Grace and truth are brought to us in Christ Jesus. What a way to finish, guys. I know you've heard it before, but just ponder it afresh of recognize that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even while they are yet sinners, what are we willing to do? See, we don't gauge our love for them based on their conversion. We love them even while they are yet sinners. We have God's love. And we carry it. Whether they receive it, whether they receive the truth that we carry, we have no control over that. 
But we do know that God desires all to be saved. And so with radical abandon, we say, yes, God, I am willing to do your loving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but of everlasting life. And as we do it, I want you to recognize that the God of the universe has radically loved you even while you were yet a sinner. And in that covenant agreement with God, we are saying, my life for yours, Lord. I don't want to live a normal human life. I want to live a life empowered by grace. I don't want to just have good knowledge up top in my noggin. I want to have good living out of this life. If we are going to be known by something, would we rather be known by our sound doctrine or by our love? That's an interesting question. I think most of us say, could we have both? <laughs> I would like that too. But as the chief attribute of us as a church, you will know my disciples this way. We are defined by our behavior, not just by our knowledge. Satan knows the scriptures, guys. That doesn't mean he's living them. You could memorize the entire Bible and be completely wrong. You must live what you know. Do not just be a hearer, be a doer of the word. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.